Welcome to Wisdom Trek with Gramps. I am Guthrie Chamberlain and we are on day 2249 of our trek. The purpose of Wisdom Trek is to create a legacy of wisdom, to seek out discernment and insights, and to boldly grow where few have chosen to grow before. We are continuing the messages I delivered at Putnam Congregational Church over the past couple of years. This is the 10th of a 25-week message series covering the book of Hebrews. This message is titled, The Brighter Side. I pray that it will be a conduit of learning and encouragement for you. Now last week we continued our series on the good news in our series through the book of Hebrews in the New Testament. And our focus was on the peril of failing to thrive. And we learned three practical principles of spiritual progress. And those principles are we need to partake of solid spiritual food. Second, we need to maintain the practice of right living. And third, we need to exhibit a trained sense of discernment. This week, we're going to take those strong warnings from last week and look at the brighter side. Last week was a little bit of gloomy saying, you better watch out on what you're doing in your spiritual life or you could fall beyond repentance. But today, we're going to see the author bringing it back around. Because we have a brighter side in our journey, we as believers that we need for spiritual maturity. The German poet Johann Wolfgang von Goethe once said, Correction does much, but encouragement does more. Encouragement is the censure as the sun is after the shower. The strong warning that we studied last week in Hebrews chapter 6, verses 1 through 8 is one of the most sobering in all of Scripture and one of the most controversial. But I can imagine those words that hung over that original audience like a thick, black storm clouds, similar to what we had rolled through a couple days ago with the flashings of lightning, threatening to pour out the floodwaters and hurl bolts of lightning to the earth at any moment. But then... The thunder stops. The lightning gives way to just a speck of light peeking through the clouds. And then another and another. Suddenly, the brilliant sunbeam pierces the darkness, brightening the day, bringing us warmth, joy, and encouragement. That's the feelings that those Jewish Christians had that first century as they read the, second, or the, the sixth chapter of Hebrews. Surely, they wouldn't forget that stern warning in the previous verses, which basically said, don't stray away from the path of spiritual growth. However, the Lord led the author of Hebrews to transition to a section of affirmation, of encouragement and hope for those believers of that first century in verses 9 through 12. And then leading the audience from under that shadow of threatening storm clouds back to the original theme of the book. As we look at verses 13 through 20 today, it will be Jesus Christ is our high priest in the order of Melchizedek. Let's start by reading Hebrews 6, verses 9 through 12. It's on page 1868 in your pew Bibles, starting with verse 9. Even though we speak like this, and when he's referring like this, he means of those stern warnings that he had just talked to him about. He says, dear friends, we are convinced of a better things in your case the things that you have to do with salvation. God is not unjust. 
He will not forget your work and the love that you have shown to him as you have helped other people and continue to help them. We want each of you to show that same diligence to the very end so that what hope you have may be fully realized. We do not want you to become lazy, but to imitate those who through faith and perseverance inherit what was promised. Now, any of us know, especially this time of year, there's a lot of construction going on, and construction in the highways many times requires blasting before they can build it back to something better. And the author of Hebrews sent those strong commands last week in chapter 5, verse 11, through chapter 6, verse 3. He basically shouted to them, grow up, believers. Don't be infants any longer. And he followed that reverberating blast of those grim consequences for those who failed to thrive. And instead, they fell away, as we looked at verses 4 through 8 of chapter 6 last week. Now, the letters of the, the recipients of this letter might have, after that stern warning, would have felt a little shaky, perhaps even fearful, saying, wondering if they just got a little bit too close to that dangerous precipice of that irreversible fall. But the writer of Hebrews stops his blasting and warnings and starts building back with affirmations and encouragement. As he transitions from the third person plural where he says, those others who have fallen away, to that second per person plural where he says, in your case, including them. He addresses them with an intimate term of endearment that demonstrates his dear love for those people. He says, dear friends. And that's stronger than the familiar ties of saying brothers or sisters. The term the author used here is related to that Greek word agape. And it connotes those who are dear, loved, prized, and valued. The writer of Hebrews also marks a complete contrast between those others and all of you. He uses through a phrase as, but, dot, 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 concerning you. The point is clear. The author is convinced that better things concerning his audience were becoming true. They will not become part of that group that fell away. Instead, he was assured that they would respond positively to the means that God has provided spiritual growth and will grow up, as verse 9 says, the things that have to do with salvation, that you'll grow up in that. You'll grow beyond the basics that we studied last week into something more strong in spiritual maturity. The basis for the author's confidence in his readers and the spiritual growth comes from verse 10. He says, they have already borne good fruit when they're serving others. They have already revealed the sens heart sensitive to God's work and showed their works that were motivated by love in the past. And despite their hardship, the author notes, as you have helped his people, continue to help them. Don't stop the good work that you had begun. Yes, they may have been slowed down in their progress a bit. Their progress toward maturity. As they ran into obstacles and persecution, they were somewhat defeated or deflated, but God wouldn't abandon them. A just God would never overlook the love and the living out in conformity of their lives to Christ's teaching. Just as Colossians chapter 2, verse 6 says, and now, just as you accepted Christ Jesus as your Lord, you must continue to follow him. Don't give up now. Continue to follow him. The struggle of the Hebrews Christians 
could re it reignite that burning passion for spiritual progress by fanning in the flames. If any of you have worked a fireplace before, sometimes you have to blow on it or a baffle to get the flames to fan into to a bright flame, those embers of love and faith. And that's precisely what the author of Hebrew urges these readers to, listeners to do. In Hebrews chapter 6, verse 11 and 12, in these two verses, he motivates them with three exhortations. If you look at your bulletin insert on one, it says the brighter side at the top. We see these three exhortations toward maturity. The first exhortation was to show the same diligence to the very end in verse 11. They had already shown diligent work and love in the past. They needed to persevere. They needed to continue on to maintain so that what you hope for may be fully realized. The formula here has never changed. Faith working itself out in love and motivated by hope. And we see this in 1 Corinthians chapter 13 and 1 Thessalonians chapter 1 and chapter 5. But the second exhortation, the author writes, we do not want you to become lazy in verse 12. Now, the term translated lazy here is the same word that the author used in chapter 5, verse 11, of becoming dull or the in hearing, as the New Living Translation puts it, spiritually dull and indifferent. They just become numb to their Christian life, and we're not advancing toward maturity. So after a brief detour where we saw last week, where we went through chapter 6, verses 4 through 8, where he had that stern warning about falling away and beyond being able to be brought back, he brings his readers back to the original purpose. His original purpose of that warning was to snap them out of their spiritual stupor. And then the third exhortation is, he says, he wanted them to imitate those who through faith and patience inherit what has been promised in verse 12. With these words, the author takes that final turn out from this brief detour. He was heading down this path, and he took this detour over another path as a stern warning saying, wake up, guys. You're heading toward the cliff. It's time to wake up. Reminds me of a, about a month ago when we were heading back from Virginia, and we were driving along just about ready to enter Ohio. I was pretty sleepy. Then all of a sudden, Paul says, wake up! because I was drifting toward the edge of the road. And that's what the author of Hebrews was saying, wake up. You're spiritually drifting toward that cliff. I was awake after that. With these words, the author takes that final turn out of the brief detour and constitutes the third warning in the Hebrew, book of Hebrews. And he's returning to now the main road as I veered back onto the main freeway. The author was veering back onto that main road. Of the original discussion, receiving the promised spiritual rest that we talked about in chapter 4. Now, amid these trio of exhortations, we can hear the echoes of an overarching desire to be taken forward to maturity, as chapter 6, verse 1 tells us, that is, diligently growing in faith and love. And then verse 11 says, to the very end, you are heading down the right road. Don't veer off. Continue till you reach the end. Now, negatively, it involves fighting that tendency toward laziness. And even the best of us at times have tendencies toward laziness to take the easy road. So we need to watch out that tendency in our own lives, especially on a spiritual life. 
But positively, it means having the models of faith and patience to follow that in verse 12. Now, back in verse 13 through 20, through the rest of the chapter, the author begins with an example of Abraham. Then he takes us back to the preeminent example of Jesus Christ. But let's first read verses 13 through 15. When God made his promise to Abraham, since there was no one greater for him to swear by, he swore by himself, saying, I will surely bless you and give you many descendants. And so after waiting patiently, Abraham received what was promised. Now, it shouldn't surprise us that Abraham was the go-to person for the author of Hebrews, of one who was persevering in their faith. Let's dig into that story a little bit. The writer has just encouraged the readers in verse 12. He says, follow the examples of those going to inherit God's promise because of their faith and endurance. And then placing Abraham in the spotlight, saying, here's the example I want you to follow. He draws the attention of the classic example of a man of God who waited and waited and waited for the fulfillment of God's promise. The promise of a son born to Sarah Abraham's wife, you may recall that Abe and Sarah were no spring chickens. Even when they first called him, Sarah was 65 years old, and Abraham was 75 years old. I don't know about you, but I'm not sure I'd want a kid at 65 or 75, either one. They're great when you're younger, and grandkids are wonderful now. But having an infant at that age? Well, that wasn't all. Nevertheless, what in ought to have been their twilight years of Abraham and Sarah, Abraham received the promise of, from God that he would become a great nation. Genesis chapter 12, verse 2. And that his descendants would be as numerous as the dust on the earth. Genesis 13, verse 16. Or in the, like the stars in heaven, untold millions and billions. In Genesis chapter 15, verse 5. What great promises this was to Abraham. However, God took his good old time in bringing those promises of even a single son, Isaac, to fruition. By the time the promise was fulfilled, Abraham was 100 years old, and Sarah was 90, in Genesis chapter 17, verse 17. Twenty-five long years had passed between the time he was originally promised until that fulfillment of that promise. When all common sense and all human experiences would have told Abraham and Sarah, that the likelihood of having a child at those ages was completely nothing. It was impossible. But that was made this promised child of Isaac such special because he was a child of promise. Abraham did wait. God did make good on his promise. Abraham learned through a life lived by faith that God's promises were sure. There was no questioning. God swore by his own name in verses 13 and 14. And to renege on that promise would have meant ruining his reputation as an all-powerful, all-knowing, all-loving, or all-benevolent God. Abraham knew this. So despite a quarter-century delay, 25 long years for God's fulfillment, as was promised to Abraham, Abraham patiently waited. And ultimately, he obtained the promises, we're told in verse 15. And Paul reiterated this when he wrote to letters to the Romans. In Romans 4, verses 18 through 21, he says, Even when there was no reason for hope, Abraham kept hoping, believing that he would become the father of many nations. For God had said to him, That's how many descendants you will have. 
And Abraham's faith did not weaken, even though at a hundred years of age, he figured his body was as good as dead, and so was Sarah's womb. Abraham never wavered in believing God's promise. In fact, his faith grew stronger, and in this, he brought glory to God. He was fully convinced that God is able to do whatever he promised. We have much to learn about waiting patiently, as Abraham and Sarah did. Abraham patiently waited and trusted God in his faithfulness and to his promise, and that can serve as a model to us as Christians. And just like Abraham was the recipients of a specific promise, we too as Christ followers, as believers, have promises made to us. And one of those promises, 2 Peter wrote, or Peter wrote in 2 Peter chapter 1, verse 4, and because of his glory and excellence, he has given us a great and precious promises. These are the promises that will enable you to share his divine nature and escape the world's corruption caused by evil human desires. And just as God will ultimately fulfill his promise to Abraham after a very long wait, he will be faithful to fulfill his promises to us, even at times that we may have to wait and wait and wait, as Abraham did. He is going to fulfill his promises to us. Let's move on to verses 16 through 20. Follow me as I read, starting in verse 16. People swear by someone greater than themselves, and the oath confirms what is said and puts an end to all arguments. Because God wanted to make an unchanging, his unchanging nature of his purpose very clear to the heirs of what he has promised, he confirmed it with an oath. God did this so that by two unchangeable things in which it is impossible for God to lie, we who have fled to take hold of that hope set before us may be greatly encouraged. We have this hope as an anchor for our souls, firm and secure. It enters the inner sanctuary behind the curtain where our forerunner, Jesus, has entered on our behalf. He has become our high priest forever in the order of Melchizedek. Now, verse 16, the author transitions from the example of Abraham and his patient waiting to offer encouragement for his audience to continue on for steadfastness, saying, Abraham waited 25 years just to have a son. You can wait patiently as you mature spiritually. And it's just as Abraham trusted in the absolute faithfulness of God to see him through this time of confusion and doubt, we as believers can lean on that exact unchangeable nature of our all-promise-keeping God. Now, in Jewish, typical Jewish fashion, the writer of Hebrews argues, and this was a common Hebrew argument, they always argued from less to greater than. Less than to greater than. And that's how they argued. And when they argued their proposition in that way, they knew it was a firm argument. When a person swore an oath that was greater than themselves, it would bring considered a completely settled dispute. So he says, I promise, or I take an oath. That means it's settled. To break that promise would bring down consequences on a person who would be a promise breaker. Since this is true in the human realm that we have, how much more so would God's word prove absolutely trustworthy. God even swore an oath, not on one greater than himself, but on himself, because there is none greater than himself. It reminds me of Acts chapter 4, verse 12, 
There is no salvation in there is salvation in no one else. God has given us no other name under heaven by which we must be saved. That was an oath, a promise that was promised on himself, and there's no one greater. Now, if you look at your bulletin insert again, underneath the things, the better things are coming, and that's sort of the theme of today's passage. We see that there are two unchangeable things here that should convince believers that God's promise is both worthy and trusting. The first one is God's purpose is unchangeable. In verse 17, it is in his nature to remain steadfast and unchanging. Our God is not flaky, unreliable, or unpredictable. He can, be a will, he, he can and is willing to accomplish everything he's determined to do. And second, God's promise expressed as an oath is unchangeable. And he took that oath on himself, the unchanging God. The moment his promise is spoken to his people, they can immediately begin to count on it. We can do that without wavering. Why? Because verse 18 tells us it is impossible for God to lie. If God cannot lie and he promises us in an oath on himself, then that promise is secure. Now, if you look at your other side of your bulletin insert today, we want us to look at three benefits for believers who take refuge in God. In light of the theological facts and this unchanging promises, unbreakable promises of God, there are three benefits for the believers who follow the example of Abraham and take refuge in God's promise. The first benefit is we can be greatly encouraged in verse 18. This will help us to overcome the obstacles that stand in the way of spiritual progress. And that's what the whole passage prior to this was. You have something standing in your way of spiritual progress. That's no longer necessary. The second benefit is we can take hold of the hope that is set before us in verse 18. The author uses the image of firmly grasping onto an object and holding onto it with all your might, never letting go to convey what it's like to grasp the faith for something that cannot be seen, which we'll look at more when we get to chapter 11. And having a firm handle on this hope serves us as an antidote for despair. Yes, we will face things in our life that will cause us despair, but we have this hope that we can grip onto and hold on with all of our might. And the thing is that God is holding on to us. So even though we're weak and feel like we're slipping, God will never let go of us. And that's that faith that we have. And the third benefit is we have this hope as an anchor for our souls that are firm and secure. When the waves of doubt threaten our lives, and we feel like we're adrift, our expectant trust in God and his promises will keep us firm and secure. Like the mighty anchor that prevents a ship from drifting. And if you remember chapter 2, verse 1 of Hebrews, it says, so we must listen very carefully to the truth that we have heard so we may not drift away. It's no wonder that an anchor became a popular symbol in the Christian world, especially in the Romans' catacombs. We see, as the picture on the bottom of your bulletin insert shows, that there's two fishes. The fishes were a distinct symbol used by Christians to symbolize that they were Christians. They would draw it in the sand or on the door to signify this was a Christian home. And in between those two fish on this funeral marker was an anchor. So this anchor was used, taken from Hebrews 11, or chapter 6 here, that shows that Christ is our anchor. 
And I know this is probably pretty small for you, but this says, Jesus is my anchor. So in verses 16 through 20 now, or 19 through 20, the author of Hebrews takes the anchor metaphor in an unexpected direction. Like Chris talked about the anchor holding the boat in place where it needs to be, she went on and expanded that the anchor in this passage is not talking about an anchor that's buried in the earth to help us keep our feet firmly planted on the ground or it's dropped in the bottom of a sea to help us weather a storm and to secure our ship. The anchor in this verse is not of this world. It's keeping us focused on our heavenly longing and returning our attention to the center of all source of hope, which is Jesus Christ. The writer of Hebrews says in verse 19, it ent he enters the inner sanctuary behind the curtain. And what picture does that give us that we have here? This picture is it's an act of grace to direct us and give us direct access to the throne of God. And we've come full circle here. Back, in the high, back to the high priesthood of Jesus Christ in the discussion we started in chapter 5. It's the author of Hebrews. In chapter 5, all of a sudden, he puts up a pause button. He presses the pause button. It says, we're going to pause here. We're going to take this detour around and then come back to the message. And this is what he's done in this case. He's pressed that pause button in chapter 5, verses 9, from chapter 5, verses 9 and 10. And right after that, he paused it. So let me read those two verses once again. In this way, God qualified him as the perfect high priest, and he became the source of eternal salvation for all those who believed. And God designated him to be the high priest in the order of Melchizedek. And then he says, we're going to pause. We're going to take this detour because you have something that I need to talk to you about your Christian faith, and becoming dull and lazy, and the warnings that came along with that. Verses 5, 11, through verse, chapter 6, verse 18, the writer of Hebrews puts his main presentation on hold, and he led his audience, including us, on this detour concerning their dullness of hearing and their threat of falling away. And then in verses 19 and 20, he comes back and says, Okay, we're going to press that play button again and take you back to the same topic we were talking about in chapter 5. He continues down that powerful discourse of the superiority of Christ, his work on us, pointing us to the place behind that veil in the heavenly tabernacle. In verse 20, it says, For where our forerunner, Jesus, has entered in our behalf, he has become the high priest forever in the order of Melchizedek. Now, the imagery that we've developed and will develop in these coming chapters takes us back to that holy of holies in the tabernacle where only the high priest could ever enter and he only entered once a year for the sins of the people. He first had to make himself pure before he could make the sins of the people pure. Jesus, though, entered into the heavenly tabernacle. And when he did that, he took himself as that spotless sacrifice and laid it on the altar. And he says, it is finished. The sacrifice is done. The perfect lamb, without sin or blemish, has now been sacrificed. And what does that do? It rips that temple curtain completely apart and opens God's throne to us. Because he is 
that perfect sacrifice. Jesus entered that heavenly tabernacle spotless. He placed his life before God. And as a result, we have a hope that is both firm and secure. The language of forerunner that's used in this verse is the Greek word that's only used this one time in all of the New Testament. It serves as a final assurance of the certainty of our heavenly promise. Christ in the heavenly sanctuary as our forerunner is guaranteed that we shall one day enter heaven as well. Because of his sacrifice, we can enter heaven completely pure and holy. So what's our application for today's passage? Our application is when dealing with doubts, dot, dot, dot. Y'all know if you write any amount, those are the three dots, that the ellipse, it's sort of a pause. So he says, when dealing with doubts, dot, 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 remember what we've talked about today. Doubts are the question marks that often punctuate and should be clear statements of theological facts. They're unquestioned, imperative, moral truths. For those who are immature in their faith or have grown sluggish in their faith in responding to spiritual things, doubts can drive us to despair. But we don't need to. For those who are willing to remember the characters and the promises of God, doubts can serve as a mere ellipse, saying, I'm doubting, I'm fragile, dot, 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 but this is what God has provided for me when I'm fragile and when I'm hurting. For those who are willing to remember the characters and the promises of God, we can continue on. It's just a pause in our walk of faith, hope amid despair. It gives us assurance amid uncertainty, and it gives us confidence amid questioning when we do have those questions in life. What do we do when those storm clouds of life roll in and cast shadows of doubt over the landscape of our lives? When we're on stormy seas, our tendency is to focus on those winds and the waves that are before us rather than on the Lord. We all fall prey to this. None of us are exempted from that. And that was Peter's problem. When the Lord called him to walk on the water with him in the turbulent waters of that storm, when Peter took his eyes off Jesus, that's when he began to sink. That forerunner, that anchor, amid that churning sea, he was fine as long as he kept his eyes on Christ. As soon as he locked the waves and the winds, that's when he sank. And that is with our lives. We can continue on if we keep our eyes on Jesus. We may still see the winds and the waves around us, but we can continue to walk forward. So amid the storms of our lives, God gives us an anchor for our soul. As Hebrews chapter 6, verse 19 says, when doubts tell us and our minds tell us only a fool would believe these things, Hebrews chapter 6, verse 18, and I'll read from the New Living Translation, says, so God has given us both his promise and his oath. These two things are unchangeable because it is impossible for God to lie. Therefore, we have, who have fled for, to him for refuge can have great confidence as we hold the hope that lies before us. So even though 
the circumstances around us may plummel us with painful blows. All we see are the winds and the waves. We can have a quiet confidence that God is the per his purpose and promises are true. They're unchangeable. He is in control even when we're out of control. And that our soul can be anchored firmly in the heavenly realm, not in the earthly realm. In the heavenly realm, which is the anchor. Jesus is our anchor, and he went behind that curtain of the tabernacle, presented himself as that sacrifice that we might have that firm hope of salvation. And that's the, the passage today is talking about, that graphic on our bulletin insert, better things are coming. And that's what the passage means to us, and that's what the author one of Hebrews wanted to get across to those he was writing to. Better things are coming, because the word of God is written for us also. It was written to those Hebrew Christians in that first century, but it's written for us. And we can take that hope, same hope in him. Now, next Sunday, we'll continue our series on our adventure through the book of Hebrews. Today was the third of 10 passages on that second section of Hebrews, Christ is superior as our high priest. And next week, we'll continue with the theme of Christ is our high priest in the order of Melchizedek. So our message next week will be once more, dot, 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 Melchizedek. And we'll get into more of the high priestly realm that he had. So please read Hebrews chapter 7, verses 1 through 17 in preparation for next week's message. Let us pray. Father, we do thank you. We thank you for your love, your mercy to us. We thank you for this example of Abraham and this reminder of Christ who was our high priest. He went behind the veil, presented himself as our sacrifice, that the veil may be taken down completely, ripped from top to bottom, that we might enter into the throne of God. We thank you for this we praise your name for this. As we face those wind and those waves of turbulent life here on earth, we're just waiting for your kingdom to come, Father. Help us to have Jesus Christ as our anchor that we might not sink, Father. We pray this in Jesus' precious name. Amen. I pray that this message was a blessing and a time of learning from God's word. Thank you so much for allowing me to be your guide, your mentor, but most importantly... I am your friend, as I serve you through the Wisdom Trek podcast and journal each day. And as we take this trek of life together, let us always live abundantly, love unconditionally, listen intentionally, learn continuously, lend to others generously, lead with integrity, and leave a living legacy each day. I am Guthrie Chamberlain, reminding you to keep moving forward. Enjoy your journey and create a great day every day. See you next time for more wisdom from God's word.